So the Apostle Paul writes this to the church of Ephesus in Ephesians chapter 6, verse 10. It says, Finally, my brethren, be strong in the Lord and in the power of his might. So first of all, we find our strength in the Lord and in the power of his might. Then verse 11, put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the wiles or schemes or plans of the devil. So in order to stand against the schemes, plans of the devil, our strength must be in the Lord and in the power of his might. For we do not wrestle with flesh and blood, but against principalities, against powers, against the rulers of darkness of this age, against spiritual hosts of wickedness in heavenly places. So while our adversary is spiritual and the weapons of our warfare are not carnal, flesh does play a factor in the struggle that we have against our adversary. So I don't want to, you know, when we read that, we understand this. When we fight a spiritual battle, we're not fighting people. That's, that's exactly what the, what the enemy would love for us to do is to get mad at each other or battle each other. And that's not what it's about. But, but flesh does play a role in our spiritual battle. You know, James 4.4, James warns this, and, you know, he starts off just kind of just rough in your face, calls us adulterers and adulteresses. Do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Whoever, therefore, wants to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. So our direct struggle uh, is spiritual. But our own flesh, uh, people in the, the culture of this world, and uh, then top on that, this, the, the adversary that we have in spiritual nature, we have a struggle. And Jesus made this reference about our adversary and his intentions in John 10.10. 10. The thief does not come except to what? Steal, to kill, and destroy. So Satan wants to steal life. Uh, Satan desires to end all human life. He wants to steal life from you. He wants to end life. But his ultimate goal is destruction. And you may look at that and say, well, kill and destroy, aren't those the same things? They're, they're not. And here's why. We need to look at destruction in these terms. Uh, Matthew 10, 28. And do not fear those who can kill the body, but cannot kill the soul, but fear him who is able to destroy both soul and body in hell. So Satan doesn't have that authority to send anyone to hell. And that's the problem for it. It's his desire, his goal, his what drives him to do what he does is destruction, but he has no power and no ability to destroy anyone. You know, God is all-powerful. I mean, God can do what he wants to do, but even in his omnipotence, God doesn't, God doesn't send anyone to hell. And here's what I mean by that. We sentence ourselves. We really do. We sentence ourselves to destruction if we choose to reject Christ as our Lord. God created hell not for us, not for mankind, Hell was created as a place of judgment for Satan and his angels who rebelled with him. Matthew 25, 41, Then he will say also to those on the left, Depart from me, you cursed into everlasting fire, what prepared for the devil and his angels. So if we refuse to repent, we are, are in essence remaining loyal, willfully following Satan straight into destruction. Jesus said this in Matthew 7, 13. I know I'm throwing a lot of scripture at you, but I think it's worth it. I think it's important that we do this. Matthew 7, 13. Enter by the narrow gate, for wide is the gate, and broad is the way that leads to what? Destruction. And there are many who go in by it. Many. So who in their right mind would stay on this path leading to destruction? I mean, that's what we have to think about when we, when we see that verse. Who in their right mind would 
is going to continue to follow down this path of destruction, going exactly where Satan, going exactly where the, the demons who rebelled with him or the angels who rebelled with him. Why, why on earth would anyone follow that path into destruction? How can Satan be so effective at leading many, more than, you know, it's a majority when you look at it in the original language. So how can Satan be so effective at leading people down a path that leads to destruction? You know, can, Satan can, does, and will use sinful people to accomplish that goal. Satan can, does, and will use a sinful world to accomplish his goal. Satan can, does, and will use our own flesh against us. And if we go back to the original sin, we can see how Satan opposes us from the very beginning. And I think it's his most favorite tactic, it's his most very favorite avenue, is to use our own flesh against us. We see that in Genesis chapter 3, and just going to focus on that for just a moment. Now the serpent was more cunning than any beast of the field which the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, has God indeed said, you shall not eat of every tree of the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, We may eat the fruit of the trees of the garden, but of the fruit of the tree which is in the midst of the garden, God has said, You shall not eat it, nor shall you touch it, lest you die. Then the serpent said to the woman, You will not surely die. For God knows that in that day, your, eat of it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was pleasant or desire, a desirable thing and a, desirable, a tree desirable to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. She also gave to her husband with her and he ate. Now, we've all heard this story. And I'm sure we've heard the story so many times that I think that there's a danger in hearing it so many times because we can almost treat the story like it's a fairy tale. And Church, it's not a fairy tale. It's not, it's not a proverb. It's not just a, a good, you know, spiritual lesson that, that's really trying to teach us. I mean, I want you to really put this into perspective. Here we have a, a man and a woman in a perfect environment without sin, without the knowledge of sin, without the influence of sin. And Satan is able to deceive these two people to believe a lie. I mean, how does he, do, how does he essentially get them onto a path of destruction? Because this is exactly what happens to us. So how does he accomplish this goal? They live in a sinless environment. Satan was able to deceive them to believe a lie. So if we don't take this story seriously, and we don't really take it at its, at its, at its level, what, how it's presented to us as truth, then we, we play right into the hand of the enemy. I mean, he wants us to make this whole book about a fairy tale. Just a bunch of uh, good axioms, you know, proverbs, whatever. So how can a born-again believer with the Spirit of God dwelling in them be deceived by an adversary? How can a born-again person with the Spirit of God dwelling in them be, you know, become deceived to the place where they disobey God's Word and in, a, in a sinless, perfect environment? See, like Adam and Eve, many of us don't, don't take the consequences of sin very seriously. And you say, well, I don't, I don't know about that. If, if we did, we wouldn't do them, Right? I mean, there are consequences to sin. And I've heard people say this when they think about the story of Adam and Eve. Uh, I don't know if you've ever heard this before or something similar, but have you ever heard someone downplay their role uh, in the fall of man? For instance, they'll use this as an, an idea like, like uh, uh, Adam and Eve were innocent. They didn't know sin, and that worked against them because they really didn't know what they were doing. 
they sinned, but they didn't understand what death was because they'd never seen death. They didn't really understand what sin was because they've never sinned. And I would say this, when you hear people say that, that is exactly, it's this, that's a response from a generation who takes no responsibility for their sin. That is exactly the anthem or the voice of a generation who says, well, you know, I'm not really responsible for my sin. Other people are. Because that is true. If, if this, this is true, if Adam and Eve were, were innocent, so innocent that they didn't understand the consequences, they, God didn't tell them, then God would be partially to blame for this. But God isn't partially to blame for this. I mean, I, we, we look at the Bible this way, and I understand it, that we have to go on what the Word says. But I think that God creating mankind, his most prized creation, created in his image and likeness, you know, we can see the love and the devotion for us. Why would he ever send us into a place where, you know, uh, you're going to die, but, you know, what is that? Uh, just figure it out on your own. I, I don't see that. I, I, full well, Adam and Eve knew exactly what the consequences of sin were. Adam knew eating the forbidden fruit, and Eve knew that it would cause death. It would bring death. It would bring an end to physical life, and it would bring the end of their spiritual life. See, if we fail to repent of our sins, and, and really, it's, it's no different today. And, it, and here's what I mean. Uh, it's hard for us to, to, to fathom this at times, but it's really no different today. Listen, if we fail to repent of our sins, experience new birth, receive the Holy Spirit, uh, and serve Jesus as Lord, we're, we're not going to escape judgment. But yet we live in a culture that says all you have to do is believe. Believe, say this prayer, and that's fine. And really, what they're saying isn't really wrong. It's just what's left out is wrong. And that's what we find exactly what Satan does in the garden. It's, it's some, some of it is what he leaves out. You surely won't die. Well, you will die. You won't die today. You're not going to die a physical death, but you are going to die today. There is going to be a spiritual death. And it's the same tactic that he uses today. The response isn't wrong, it's just incomplete. And we find that today throughout our culture. Satan told Eve that she would not die, and he was right, partially right. Again, Satan always uses a lie. He uses, always uses a tactic that is partially true. Because if it's completely false, we can sniff it out pretty easy. Adam and Eve knew the consequences of sin, yet they disobeyed God. Satan was able to deceive and influence sin to believe that maybe God was bluffing, or maybe he wasn't, maybe he wasn't telling the whole truth. And Eve knew what God had said, but she chooses to believe a lie. Because why? And that's the most important question we've really got to ask, is why would she believe Satan? Why would she believe something that this being, this beast, has, has spoke? Why would she take the word of this, this creature over God? And this is where I think we can find the answer, and this is where we can really find how Satan will attack us, is what he does is this. He, he concocts a lie, a deception, that connects with her desires, with her inward desires. And that's been the plan of Satan since the beginning. See, what did Eve want most? What did she desire most? You know, it wasn't like she just wanted that fruit because that fruit looked good. That, it was what was attached to that fruit. What the serpent said was attached to that fruit. You will be like God. You will be like God. Satan convinced her that if she could eat that fruit, she would become like God. And when, if you think about it, it goes all the way back to when Satan rebelled in heaven. It, if we read Isaiah correctly, we believe this is about Lucifer, which is the devil. 
And so this is what the prophecy is about, considering the devil. Think about it in these terms. Think, I want you to see the selfishness and the, and, and the pride and the arrogance and the desire of Satan in, 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 the, in the heavenly realms. Uh, Isaiah 14, verse 13. For you have said in your heart, I will ascend into heaven. I will exalt my throne above the stars of God. I will also sit on the mount of the congregation on the farthest sides of the north. I will ascend above the heights of the clouds, and here it is. I will be like the Most High. It's the same desire. It's the same deception. What he has in his heart, his desires of his heart to be like God, is exactly what he presents to Eve. You will be like God if you eat this fruit. So this is really the anthem of all sin. Satan is the originator of sin, and the desire of sin is autonomy. I want you to really think about that. The desire of all sin is autonomy. When we sin, we disobey God, we're really assuming the role of the Most High. We are self-governing ourselves. We, we have the Word of God. It's very clear how we should live our lives, but we say, you know, not today, not in this situation. I'm going to do what I want to do. Now, that seems arrogant, and that seems brash, but that's exactly what we do. When we know what God says, and we do our own thing. We're saying, you know what? I want to be autonomous here. I want to be self-governing. God's Word, God's law is true, but this is what I want to do. See, what it does is we give in to that desire because it's, it's something that we just feel like we must do. Satan taps right into that. He understands it perfectly. So we try to water down the, good, the word or water down the truth because it just doesn't sound good when we, we talk about it that way. We want to be self-governing. We want to be autonomous. And in essence, we want to be rebellious because that's what sin is. Sin is rebellion against God. And Satan knows this, and he can't drag anyone into the abyss with him. So how am I going to, my goal for, for them is destruction. How do I destroy them? I can't destroy them. I don't have the power. I really don't even have a great ability. I, I have no authority to take them. So how do I get them destroyed? How, how do I accomplish my goal? And what he does is just look at himself. And he goes, well, what was in my heart? What was the desire of my heart? What, what caused me to rebel against God Almighty? And he uses that same desire to tempt Adam and Eve. You know, in our nation, Satan doesn't have to play the role of the boogeyman. He doesn't have to play the role of the boogeyman. He could do that. And I'm not trying to downplay the presence of evil in our nation or in our own community. You know, I've witnessed firsthand demonic possession. Um, some of you may want to see demonic possession and, and a demon cast out of a person out of pure curiosity. Can I tell you this? Uh, it's not something you want to see. It, it really, I, you know... I've seen it a couple times, and I, I really wish I hadn't seen it. I wish I really hadn't experienced what I experienced. Because I'll tell you what, when you encounter a demon, a person that is demon-possessed, and they begin to talk, and they begin to lie, they begin to try to evoke fear, it is a little freaky. And that's, I'm, I'm just saying this, not from a, pre, a, a position of being scared. It didn't scare me, it just, it's freaky. Demonic manifest, or demonic possession is real, I'm not discounting it, but I don't think Satan has to expend that kind of energy in our nation. And here's why. Because we are so self-centered, so selfish, and so self-driven. And Satan has limited resources. Remember, a third of the angels fell with him. Uh, angels can't reproduce. They're, they're not making new demons. All right, so he has to resource his kingdom wisely. If you possess a person, that demon is in that person. But if you could do something else, if you can. If you could gain more influence, 
then wouldn't you do it? With the limited resources? Absolutely. And Satan does this. Satan has a kingdom, and it has limited resources. And again, I'm not saying there aren't people in our community who aren't demon-possessed. I'm sure they are. But however, there are people in our community that are probably mostly oppressed by the devil, oppressed by a demonic spirit, completely different than possession. Demonic spirit oppressing a person isn't bound to that person. If a person is possessed by a demon, they're bound to that person. But if they're oppressed, you know, a person, the demon that oppresses can not only oppress a person, but a family and a church. So it's a, it's a wiser role to speak of. It's, it's kind of the, the action that, it, and then when you have selfishness and greed as the culture, why waste your resources possessing people? We can just influence that. See, why would we ever thank the Holy Spirit? And, and I would, I'm going to say this, because some people, I'm sure there's no one in here of this, but I just want to make sure, uh, a Christian, a born-again Christian cannot be possessed by a demon. Period. Period. Think about this. Why would the Holy Spirit share space with a demon? Why? I mean, when Satan rebelled and the demons and the angels rebelled with him, they were not allowed to keep their position. Do you think if God's going to not allow them to keep that position in heaven, you think they're really, you think he's really going to allow someone born again, redeemed, bought by the blood of Jesus, a new creation, the Spirit of God dwelling in them, do you really think he's going to share that same space with the demon? course not. In fact, we don't find ever one example in scripture where a believer, a born-again person, has a demon and the demon is cast out of them. You don't have one example. Now, you have examples of people who aren't born again that have demon possession, that a demon is cast out of, but you never have one where there is a believer. Look at this, 1 Corinthians, just to think about this in scriptural terms, chapter 10, verse 20. Rather, that the things which the Gentiles sacrifice, they sacrifice to demons and not to God. And, do not, and I do not want you to have fellowship with demons. You cannot drink the cup of the Lord and the cup of demons. You cannot partake of the Lord's table and the table of demons. What we find in Scripture is this. We are admonished through Scripture to resist, to submit ourselves to God. And so we find that as a common, common admonishment from Scripture. Satan cannot possess a born-again believer, but he can oppress, and he does oppress. And I'm sure there are several, if not many, of you that are experiencing that on some level or have experienced that on some level. Some of you are struggling with your adversary. You know what? When you're struggling with the adversary, it, you can feel very lonely, feel very isolated. You're very vulnerable. 1 Peter 5.8 says this, Be sober, be vigilant, because your adversary, the devil, walks about like a roaring lion, seeking whom he may devour. Look at this, resist him. Resist him, steadfast in the faith. Knowing that the same sufferings are experienced by your brotherhood in the world. You're not alone, by the way. If you're experiencing oppression in your life, you feel like, man, you are in a war with the adversary, you are not alone. One of the greatest tactics Satan tries to do is this, isolation and loneliness. You're alone. What you're dealing with, maybe it's sin, maybe it's a struggle, whatever it is, you're all alone. You're the only one dealing with this. If people find out about this, they'll isolate you. They'll, they'll ostracize you. You'll, be even, you'll feel even more lonely to lie the devil. Resist him steadfast in the faith, knowing that the same sufferings are experienced by your brotherhood in the world. You're not alone, church. People in this church and throughout our community are being oppressed by the adversary. 
Peter tells us that our adversary is looking for an opportunity, an opportunity to devour. And we must resist the adversary steadfastly in the faith. If we fail to resist him steadfastly in the faith, he will take an opportunity to oppress. Let me give you a couple examples. Ephesians 4.26. Be angry and do not sin. I've not mastered that yet. Anybody else? Be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your wrath. And he gives the reason here. Nor give place or opportunity to the devil. So in this example, we shouldn't give the devil an opportunity to, to oppress or to influence any opportunity to do ever what he wants to do or what he plans to do through anger and through the mishandling of anger. You and I are going to get angry. I mean, if you drive in Crestview, if you go down to Fort Walton Beach, you're going to get angry. People don't know how to drive. If everyone drove like me, this world would be perfect. But we can eliminate the opportunity that Satan has or desires to oppress us if we handle the situation correctly and with a pure heart. Don't give the devil an opportunity to oppress you. Because if you give him an inch, church, you should know this, he will try to take a foot. And once he's got a foot, he's going for more. I'll give you an example. A husband and wife, they start experiencing difficulty in their marriage. Let's say their, their intimacy begins to wane. Let's say it becomes... It becomes easier and easier to get frustrated with each other. You communicate less and less with each other, and now you're just communicating at each other. Um, let's say that little things get blown out of proportion. That couple is a target. They are given plenty of opportunity for Satan to come and to oppress. When our struggle becomes flesh and blood, Satan uses that desire of our flesh as an opportunity to deceive our flesh. Look at James chapter 1, verse 13. Let no one say when he is tempted, I am tempted by God, for God cannot be tempted by evil, nor does he himself tempt anyone. Verse 14, but each one is tempted, each one of us are tempted when he is drawn away by his own desires and enticed. Then when desire has conceived, it gives birth to sin, and sin, when it's full grown, full grown gives, brings forth death, and if we continue in death, it leads to destruction. So when communication and intimacy in a marriage begins to suffer, Satan will exploit that. He will exploit that opportunity. There is an unmet need, there is an opportunity, and he will get a foothold in that marriage. Let's say a couple are at odds with each other. One person wants this, the other person wants that. There's poor communication, you have anger, you have frustration. That is the kind of opportunity Satan is looking to exploit. See, when he sees the door cracked, he's going to put his foot in it. And once he's got his foot in that door, what's he going to do? With his foot in the door, he's going to start whispering. He's going to whisper lies. He's going to whisper, if you're angry at your spouse, he's going to, he's going to entice that. If you have a misconception in your brain about your spouse, he is going to entice that. He is going to speak lies. He's going to satisfy your flesh. And he's going, to make, he's going to cast all the guilt on the other person. You say, well, the other person is guilty. Prime target. He starts with lies. Your husband doesn't love you. Or how about this? Your wife doesn't appreciate you like that lady does at work. Here's another one. Your wife doesn't satisfy you sexually, so go online. Whatever you find, sexual activity excites you. Besides, you're not, you're not committing adultery. You're not sleeping with anyone. It's all fantasy. 
But that's the lie we're told. That's the lie we accept, and those are the reasons why we justify. And it's an open door, and Satan will exploit that door every time. When the door is open and our desires are enticed, we begin to entertain lies. We, we look for opportunities to satisfy those desires with our flesh. Satan doesn't have the, the, possess, the power to possess, but he has the power to oppress a believer. And what is his desire? Because Jesus made it very clear it wasn't to unbelievers to steal, to kill, and destroy. Satan can't drag anyone to hell. Frankly, he doesn't need to expend that, much kind, of, that kind of energy because we will follow him willingly. Willingly, we'll follow him. Why? Because we'll listen to lies. And we listen to lies because they satisfy our desires. What's going on in here? See, every human being has sinful nature. Every human being has a sinful nature. Every one of us have sinful desires. Satan knows this, and he knows how to entice them. And he knows how to get us to justify our desires. So when we satisfy those desires, and they're contrary to the Word of God, we don't feel so bad. Adultery and sexual immorality, let's say, you can't find any scripture that's going to justify either one, sexual morality or adultery. Yet there are Christians that, that justify it all the time. Whatever, you, whatever reason, whatever conclusion they can come to, this is why I can do this. This is why it's all right. See, it's autonomy. It goes all the way back to what we want, me, me, me. And Satan just loves it. He craves for that opportunity. When he sees selfishness arise, when he sees the flesh rise up, it's an opportunity for him. Satan can play the role of boogeyman, we know that, but in most situations, he doesn't need to. And all the opportunity that he needs is the flesh. Satan has lied to us, convinced us that life is best when all of our desires are met, when all of our desires are satisfied. And you know, I think when it comes to our young people and our kids especially, we need to give them a good dose of reality that this world has nothing to present that is going to satisfy their desires. There's nothing in this world. If you are looking for perfection, completeness, wholeness, you're not going to find it in this, this world. And this world will be destroyed. And there will be a new heaven and a new earth. But there's nothing in that world that's going to bring the satisfaction that only Jesus can give you. Remember how Satan uses his own flesh and his desires against us. And he understands our flesh very well because he understands sin because he is the originator of sin. I'd like to go back to James chapter 1, verse 14. But each one is tempted when he is drawn away by his own desires and enticed. And then when desire has conceived, it gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is full grown, brings forth death. Satan's best weapon is arsenal, isn't, aren't demons. His best weapon is ourselves, our flesh, and the world. I began the message by sharing uh, Ephesians chapter 6, right? Be strong in the Lord and the power of his might. So how do we do that? How, how are we strong in the Lord and the power of his might? How do we find our strength in the Lord? Listen to what James writes in James 4, 6. But he gives more grace. Therefore, he says, God resists the proud, but gives grace to the humble. In the very next verse, therefore submit to God. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Skip down to verse 10. Humble yourselves in the sight of the Lord, and he will lift you up. 
You know, for when I am weak, I am strong. And that goes, that's counterintuitive, isn't it? But yet there's a spiritual truth. See, God resists the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. Therefore, we must submit ourselves to God if we want grace. Because let's face it, church, when we have desires we're active on, when we, we give the opportunity to say we're just being selfish, and I know we, we justify it a lot of different ways. Well, this doesn't happen in my life. My wife doesn't give me this, and, or my kids treat me this way or whatever. My boss didn't do this. Plenty of ways to justify it, but it comes down to this. We're being very prideful, and pride is at the heart of all sin. So it comes down to this. How, how are we going to get out of that position? How are we going to we're going to resist the devil. Well, we have to submit ourselves first to God. Submit ourselves to God. We have to crucify pride every chance we get. We need grace. We need grace abundantly, amen? But pride makes us grace resistant. We need the power of God to resist the devil. This happens when we are submitted to him. You know, have you ever tried to go out and fight the devil on your own? You're going to lose. Try to go out and resist the devil without submitting to God. And let me know how that works for you. Humility is the opposite of pride, and pride is the desire that puts me, myself, and I first. Submission to God is key to overcoming our adversary. That's why submit ourselves to God, not resist the devil first. And, you know, that's, that used to be resist the devil and he will flee, resist the devil and he will flee, but we'd always leave out that part. Submit yourself to God first, foremost. That puts you in a place of humility. It puts you in a place where you can receive grace. Humility is the key to submission. If you, again, if you try to resist the devil without submitting to God, it's going to be difficult, impossible, I would say. Jesus shared this truth throughout his ministry, and he exampled humility for us through the cross. In Philippians, Paul writes this, just reminding uh, the church the power of humility. In Philippians chapter 2, verse 5, Let this mind be in you, in each of us, which was also in Christ Jesus, who being in the form of God did not consider it robbery to be equal with God. He was God of the flesh co-equal member of the trinity you know there was no argument saying who, who's going to go down to earth and die for these people jesus it's you nope send the holy spirit no there wasn't that argument there wasn't that there wasn't that disagreement there was unity in the godhead you know well if i go down to earth am, am i not lowering my standards i mean i'm god you don't have that type of human argument in the godhead let this mind be in you, which is also in Christ Jesus, who, being in the form of God, did not consider it robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation, taking on the form of a bondservant, a slave, and coming in the likeness of men, and being found in the appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient, submitted himself. Submission and humility go hand in hand. Submission to the point of death, even the death of the cross. God took on flesh, humbled himself, came in the likeness of man, which is just incredible when you think about it. The humility in that action. The creator puts on the flesh of the creation. God in the flesh humbled himself and endures the cross, one of the most horrific ways of death, and the shame and the pain and the scorn and the ridicule that accompanied the cross. The cross is an example of humility, pride. It's, it's the mother of all sins. It feeds every selfish desire. But humility, humility, it destroys pride, and it welcomes grace. Pride dies with humility. And, and humility is one of those things that 
you have to have it here, but sometimes you just got to practice it here too. Let's face it, some of us are slow to learn, so we just got to do, we got to submit ourselves sometimes, and sometimes we don't like to submit. Sometimes you just grit your teeth. I don't want to submit, but I got to. And hopefully this, you know this, it's not that I got to, it's I need to, and I want to. I, I want to submit myself. I just have difficulty submitting myself, and that's a, that is a reasonable argument. It's a reasonable conflict within us. Because why? We want to be self-governing. We want to, we want to do what we want to do. We want to be like God. So it's difficult. It's not easy. Pride. Pride dies with humility. Pride loses its power when we bear our own cross. Think back earlier, I referenced Ephesians chapter 6. Of course, in that chapter, we're talking about the armor of God. And for example, in the armor of God, there is the helmet of salvation, correct? I'm just going to pick on this one for just a second. Not in a bad way, in a good way. Salvation, experiencing the grace and mercy of God. Pride opposes grace. Pride is grace resistant. It'll make you grace resistant, just like unforgiveness. So imagine this. Someone's praying, and, and I, I know I've said this before. You, you can't really pray the armor of God on. You've got to live the armor of God on. But, but we do this. We're in a battle. A battle. We're in a dogfight with the devil. I, I need to submit myself to God and resist the devil. He's going to flee. I'm going to put on the armor of God. And usually we, we bypass the whole submit to God. We just jump to the armor of God. I'm going to put my armor out. I'm going to go out to war with the enemy. And you get your hat handed to you. Here's why. Because you can't pray the armor of God without living the armor of God. And here's what I mean by that. So someone imagine this. They're, they're, God, I'm going to put on the helmet of salvation. I'm going to be reminded. I'm going to guard my heart, my mind, reminding me of my salvation, reminding me of what you have accomplished for me. But at the same time, that person, let's say, is prideful. You can pray that all day long, and it's not going to work. Because that pride will make you resistant to grace. You're dealing with sin, let's say. Let's say you're not submitting yourself to God. You're not humbling yourself. You're resisting, confessing your sin. You're doing everything to avoid sin from being seen or known by anyone. I'm just going to take it to God. I'm going to take it to God. I'm going to keep it here. God knows. God understands. God forgives. But you know what? There's times that sounds good. It even is biblical to a certain extent. But when it doesn't work, you might want to say, hey, that confess your sins to one another thing might have something that I need to do. But we know that and we say, I'm not doing that because if they find out that junk about me, what are they going to think? How are they going to treat me? How? So we, we have this pride again just swells our head. And when it gets so big, you can't get the helmet of salvation on your head. The armor of God can't be prayed on unless it's lived, unless there's an opportunity for God to slip it on you. When we are submitted to, to Christ, that's when we can resist the devil. That's, that's when the armor of God has its power. Why? Because we've lived it. Because God has seen humility. Salvation, you know, for example, the helmet of salvation, I, I, I am not worthy. I'm a sinner. And there's this humility, and God places that helmet right on you because he sees humility in your life. Cannot, will not stand firmly and resist the devil without humility. God resists the pride but gives grace to the humble. Submit first to God, then he will enable you. He will empower you to resist the devil. And when you resist the devil and you are submitted to God, he has no opportunity. It is a great plan that God gives us. Submit ourselves to God first, resist the devil, and he will flee. Because he has no opportunity. All of us must crucify our flesh. And daily, daily, Jesus said this, Luke 9, 23. Then he said to all of them, if anyone desires to come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross daily, and follow me. Daily, because why? The flesh lives daily. And we live in a world that's full of flesh. And we live in a world that's full of desires. And daily, 
you have to crucify your flesh. And that takes humility. That takes submitting to God. But the flesh is full of pride. The flesh will do this. You'll get, you'll get to going, serving God. Man, you're, and some of you have been on this journey before. Man, you are, you are going all out for God. You are serving God, and you are submitting to God. You are humble. But at some point, you get tired of humbling yourself because no one else is humbling themselves. You ever been there before? Satan goes, why are you doing this for? Why are you wasting something? This is nothing. You don't have to do that. And what does he do? He sees an open door and he speaks lies into it. And we begin to, to get ourselves off the path we're on. Listen, just because you're on the right path doesn't mean you're not going to have difficult. Because difficult is the way. Narrow is the way. Daily, we have to crucify our flesh. Humility is so important. Submitting ourselves to God. 